On the two um, Sundays previous to today, our sermon centered on prayer. Two weeks ago, Pastor Sue helped us think about what it means to pray for healing, knowing that sometimes healing comes and that other times it does not. And last Sunday, we looked at two stories which depict prayer as a kind of struggling with God, holding on to God for a blessing and persistently asking for justice until that blessing, blessing and that justice are given. And this morning, too, we'll think about prayer, um, this time about what it reveals to us about God. Jeremiah 14 begins with a drought in the land. The people want to know when God is going to bring relief, when God is going to make it rain. The earth is cracked open. The farmers mourn the loss of their crops. The animals are dying of thirst. There's this terrible and sad image of the doe abandoning her newborn fawn because she knows there's nothing for it to eat. The cry of Jerusalem goes up. The people cry out and beg God to answer. They pray for rain, and no rain comes. The people plead for salvation. They plead for mercy. They remind God of prior mercies. They remind God of the old promises. They remind God that God dwells among them. They bemoan the fact that Despite God's proximity, God moves among them like a stranger, one with no obligation toward them and no intention of offering aid. The people pray for the healing of the land. They pray for salvation. And God says no. God says no. No rain. No salvation. No healing. God says let the chips fall where they may. The people sinned and sinned. And sinned again, they wandered away over and over and over again. So God says, if they like wandering away so much, let them suffer the consequences. And then God speaks of something more than drought, something more than famine. God raises the specter of empire, the specter of Babylon, the threat of conquest, the threat of the sword. And God tells Jeremiah to not even bother praying for the people to quit being their intermediary, their intercessor, because, God says, I do not hear their cry. And although they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I do not accept them. But by the sword, by famine, by pestilence, I consume them. Jeremiah protests, reminding God that the prophets foretold a coming peace and encouraged the people to not be afraid of the sword and to not be afraid of famine because God will save them just as God always has. Then God says to Jeremiah, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They're prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, though I did not send them, and who say sword and famine shall not come on this land, by sword and famine those prophets shall be consumed, and the people to whom they prophesy shall be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and sword. There shall be no one to bury them, themselves, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, for I will pour out their wickedness upon them. You shall say to them this word, let my eyes run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease, for the virgin daughter, my people, is struck down with a crushing blow, with a very grievous wound. If I go out into the field, look, those killed by the sword, and if I enter the city, look, those sick With famine, for both prophet and 
priests ply their trade throughout the land and have no knowledge. Then Jeremiah pleads again. Have you completely rejected Judah? Does your heart loathe Zion? Why have you struck us down so that there is no healing for us? We look for peace, but find no good for a time of healing. But there's terror instead. We acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, the iniquity of our ancestors, for we have sinned against you. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. Can any idols of the nations bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Is it not you, O Lord, our God? We set our hope on you, for it is you who do all this. And then, in the first few verses of Jeremiah 15, we hear God's answer. Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight. Let them go. And when they say to you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, those destined for pestilence to pestilence. And those destined for the sword to the sword. Those destined for famine to famine. Those destined for captivity to captivity. And I will appoint over them four kinds of destroyers, says the Lord, the sword to kill, the dogs to drag away, and the birds of the air and the wild animals of the earth to devour and destroy. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what King Manasseh, son of Hezekiah of Judah, did in Jerusalem. It's cheery stuff. Now, we know that God will eventually relent. Thanks be to God. Uh, that God will eventually act in mercy once again. That God will eventually work to release the people from their captivity in Babylon and will go with them back to Judah. In fact, we Christians believe that eventually God will come to earth in the form of a human being and will live and die for our sake, an act of profound grace. We know that there is more to the story than what Jeremiah 14 tells us. Still, I invite us to sit a while with this hard stuff from Jeremiah. As we did a few weeks ago when we sat by the rivers of Babylon and wept as we remembered all that we had lost, let's again sit in this place of desolation and see what we can see. For most of us, I suspect it doesn't take much imagination to put ourselves in the place of the people whose prayers are turned away. I suspect we have all at one time or another, felt as though God not only turned a deaf ear, but went on to actively repudiate our efforts to pray, to repent, to return to the fold. I suspect we have all been in that place of utter hopelessness, with only an awareness of our own sin to accompany us. I suspect we've all experienced this utterly cold, utterly alien, utterly hard, utterly just and righteous God. A God who's finally fed up with us in our pathetic attempts at faithfulness. Fed up with us in our wandering ways. Fed up with us in our blatant idolatries and our flirtations with whatever false God seems to be offering a moment's pleasure. This God is not nice. This God is not tame. This God is not flexible. This God is not ours to command. This God cannot be manipulated by our pieties. This God cannot be trifled with or tested. This God is unmoved by our suffering. This God is terrifying to behold. 
in this bleak story. From the prophet, we see God in a way that we rarely do, and in a way, quite honestly, we'd really prefer never to see again. Here we catch a glimpse of the cold fire of God's holiness, a fire that will not be quenched no matter what we do. Here we catch a glimpse of a God entirely beyond our control. And it's a terrifying thing indeed. Our gospel reading for this morning um, is not nearly so heavy, though it too, I think, reveals the utter strangeness of our God. It begins like one of those old jokes. Two guys walk into a synagogue. One of them's a Pharisee. The other's a tax collector. The Pharisee, a righteous and law-abiding guy, gives God um, thanks that he's not a sinner, that he's not like other people, that he's not a rogue or a thief or an adulterer or a tax collector. He fasts regularly, attends worship regularly, tithes regularly, and is in every way a model member of the community, the kind of person that we would love to have join our congregation, a hard worker who takes his faith commitment seriously and is not lured away by all the temptations of the world and contributes to the offering regularly, a model church member. Then there is the tax collector, whose prayer consists of seven words, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, Luke tells us that Jesus told this little joke in response to some folks who were pretty confident in their own righteousness, people who trusted in themselves, the, the original form of idolatry, people whose confidence caused them to regard everyone less pious than themselves as contemptible. And so Jesus told them the one about the tax collector and the Pharisee and, and then came to the punchline. The tax collector is the one whose prayer God hears and who is in turn justified. While the Pharisee's prayer falls by the wayside. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Now my religious upbringing included a healthy dose of anti-Phariseeism. Maybe yours did too. You know what I mean, right? Pharisees are the boogeymen of the New Testament, the epitome of self-righteousness and false pride, the religious right-wingers of their day, all worried about everyone else's stuff and altogether innocent or ignorant of their own shortcomings. That's the stereotype I grew up with. The Pharisees were the bad guys, and the disciples and sinners were the good guys, and we learned to identify with the good guys because we were, well, good Americans, right, and Christians, and we were the good guys. But as commentator R.E. Clements reminds us, if we see the Pharisee as the bad guy and the tax collector as the good guy, we miss the whole point of the story. We miss the scandal of it all. Because if the Pharisee's the bad guy and the tax collector's the good guy, then Everybody gets exactly what they deserve. The bad guy's prayer is ignored. The good guy gets justified. But that's not it at all. That's not the point at all. The point is not that God always gives us what we deserve, with the bad guys getting punished and going to hell and the good guys getting mercy and going to heaven. That may work in the movies, right, where the mysterious stranger is revealed at the end to be a good guy after all, and so wins the girl and recovers the stolen treasure and lives happily ever after, while the upstanding citizen is revealed to be abusive and generally a creep and so winds up either disgraced or face down in Boot Hill. But that's not it at all. 
That's not the point of the parable at all. To those listening to the story, the Pharisee was the good guy, the righteous guy, the one everyone would expect to be first in line at the pearly gates. And the tax collector was, well, a tax collector, a collaborator with the Roman regime, a traitor, a mercenary, not to mention the guy who shook you down at every possible opportunity for every last penny you had. The Pharisee is the good guy. And the tax collector is the bad guy. And the Pharisee's prayer goes unheard. And the tax collector goes home justified. God blesses the bad guy. And again, we're confronted with the strangeness of God. Again, we're confronted with a God who doesn't play by our rules. It's reading a different script entirely. A God beyond our control or command. A, a God who blesses the bad guys and ignores or even condemns the good guys. And again, I'd like us to just sit with this for a minute. Let's not be too hasty with the protests or the arguments or the caveats or the qualifiers. Um, all those things are there for the proclaiming. But I'd invite us to just lay them down for a minute and reflect on the utter strangeness, the incomprehensibility, the beyond our controlness of this God who ignores the righteous and justifies the sinner. Here again, I suspect we don't need to stretch our imaginations too far to place ourselves in the seat of that poor Pharisee. We work hard at being faithful. We really do. We do everything that's expected of us, everything that's asked of us. We're as obedient as we can possibly be. We serve the Lord. We praise the Lord. We tell others about the Lord. We put more than our fair share in the offering plate. We volunteer at the winter shelter. We participate in church cleaning. And we pray. We pray. We pray. Always and every day we pray. And we don't, well, we really don't believe that we're placing our trust in our Mennonite worth ethic or, or our Mennonite service or our Mennonite piety. We really don't believe that at all and, and would be duly embarrassed if someone were to suggest otherwise because all of our frantic efforts at righteousness are well-intentioned and are our humble response to what God has done for us and not some woebegone attempt to save ourselves through our own heavenly sweat equity. And all of that may even be true. We do everything right. And still it seems as though our prayers go unheard. It seems as though God is not listening. It seems as though God is not responding. And if God is listening, it seems to make little or no difference at all. Our road remains blocked. The weight on our shoulders is not lifted and we can't help but notice that all around us sinners are being justified I'm sure this is an exaggerated rendition of our experience and yet in that moment in that moment when it seems as though the bad guys all around us are being justified and we good guys are left out in the cold I suspect that exaggeration feels mighty close to being true who said the gospel story wasn't all that heavy? Well, I don't know how this sounds to you, but I have to say that I don't like it very much. These texts challenge me in ways that, quite frankly, I'd really prefer not to be challenged. 
They mess with my image of God, which is never a comfortable experience, and especially not when that messing calls me to let go of something that feels good and to pick up something sharper, colder, harder, stranger. These texts reveal just how soft and warm and fuzzy God has become for me, how domesticated, how tame, and how easily manipulated and controlled. They reveal just how cozy I've gotten with my image of God and how much that image resembles me and my prejudices and my preferences and my understandings about what is right and what's wrong and what's just and what's merciful and what's, well, God-like behavior. They reveal, in short, my own personal form of idolatry. Not so much trusting in my own righteousness to save me as trusting in my own version of God to save me. And this messing about doesn't feel good. Not at all. It's, it's like experiencing a kind of spiritual bait and switch, going in expecting justification and going home unjustified. Like the tables have been turned against me and I was caught completely unaware. The emperor has no clothes, and it turns out that I'm the emperor, and that's not pretty. So I struggle to find some happy news, um, something warm and fuzzy to end on, something gentle and good for you to take home, both for your sake and so I don't have to spend the rest of the week feeling like I let you down. Some nice note to end on that will keep us all going through the coming week. Uh, a lovely little tune to hum ourselves to sleep by, but... Well, I can't see anything like that in these texts. I can't find anything nice and warm and fuzzy to end with. These texts have, have messed with me too much. And I think they mess with us all too much. They poke right to the heart of our being, right to the heart of what we believe, what we really believe, as opposed to what we say we believe, what we prefer to believe about God. They reveal something more holy than I want to face someone more holy in the sense of being altogether other than I'd like to face. They reveal a God who is altogether separate from our wills, a God who is, in the older language, majestic and glorious and high and lifted up, a God who is not at all dependent upon us or our worship, a God who owes us nothing, a God who's free to say no to our most heartfelt pleas. So, having given up on any attempt to drum up something nice to say, let me try instead to find something good to say. Good as in good news, as in news that is good for us, rather than news that makes us feel good. Something like this. These texts remind us that no matter what we may say or believe or feel about God, we can never ever limit God to what we say or believe or feel. God is altogether beyond us and our speaking and believing and feeling. Yes, the scripture does tell us that God enters into human history, that God does draw near to us, that God became a human being and walked among us. But the same scripture tells us that God is transcendent, meaning not only above us, but also outside of us, beyond our reckoning, independent of us, not beholding to us, not at our beck and call. 
God is not ours to command or to manipulate or to control or to domesticate or to presume upon. God can choose to ignore us and our circumstances, to walk away from our pleas for mercy, to sit back and watch us suffer the consequences of our own stupidity, arrogance, and greed. We have no claim on God that allows us to insist that God do what we want God to do or behave the way we want God to behave. God is, in short, God. And that's good news. Which leads me to my second effort at offering some good news, as in news that is good for us, not news that makes us feel good. We are utterly and completely at God's mercy. We are utterly and completely at the mercy of this God who is altogether other and who owes us nothing. Our worthiness, our righteousness, our obedience, our goodness, our piety are not keys to the God engine. They're not tickets that we can redeem for special favors. They're not get-out-of-jail-free passes. And they don't make us a little more worthy of God's love and attention. So praying from an awareness of all that we have done well and all that we have done right and all that we have done out of love and obedience is the spiritual equivalent of talking to ourselves. Whatever promises we stand on are not the ones that we've made or kept. Whatever promises we stand on are promises made by God. And God keeps those promises. And God willingly offers us all the mercy we need on God's own terms and in God's own timing, not on our terms or our timing or even our liking. God offers us all the mercy we need. And that's good news. Which leads me to a third attempt at finding good news. These texts startle us out of our idolatry. They challenge us to rethink what we say about God. They poke at our pieties. They disrupt our cozy relationship with God, a God who, it turns out, looks and acts an awful lot like us, a domesticated and tame God who we sometimes treat as if God were our servant instead of the other way around. These texts call us away from such idolatry, such false images of God. They burn away our misplaced confidences and in the process melt our hearts as we catch a glimpse of someone so much more than and higher than and bigger than and stranger than the pocket-sized personal God we've settled down with. These texts call us out of our idolatry. And uncomfortable as that is, it's got to be good. It's got to be good news. Which leads me to my final effort at finding some good news in these texts. When all is said and done, when our false gods and our feeble pieties and our self-confident prayers have all been swept away, God is still there. And there are still words for us to say. There is still a prayer for us to pray. And that is simply this. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the prayer that God always hears. It may be the really 
the, the only really honest prayer that we can pray, no matter how thoroughly Christian we may be. It's the prayer that we can say without fear of contradiction, a prayer we can say without ceasing. Because as long as we walk this earth and until the day Christ comes and finishes the work of redemption, it's as true a prayer as we can say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And according to Jesus, God justifies those who pray it. And, well, there's no better good news than that. Amen.